Hello, it's Thursday, October the 19th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio here on the Stanford campus, Dr. Elizabeth Cobbs. She's a historian, novelist, and documentary filmmaker, and holds the Melbourne G. Glasscock Chair in American History at Texas A&M University. Go Aggies! More recently, Elizabeth Cobbs was named an adjunct senior fellow here at the Hoover Institution, specializing in U.S. foreign relations, world, and American history. If that's not enough, she's also the author of no less than seven books, the latest of which are The Hello Girls, America's First Women Soldiers about the First World War and Women's Suffrage, and The Hamilton Affair, a novel about the American Revolution. And that's the topic of today's podcast, Alexander Hamilton, the man, the myth, and his relevance, or lack thereof, to one Donald Trump. Elizabeth, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Now, I'm going to warn you, maybe we need to uh, step back at 10 paces before we talk about this. You're talking to somebody who is the product of a coupling of two people who attended the University of Virginia in 1956. I am happy to take up that that challenge. I was raised in the Old Dominion. I've made many happy trips to Charlottesville and Monticello. I am a Jeffersonian. Ah, I am a Hamiltonian. And I have been to Monticello many, many times. A beautiful place. Right. Of course, were built you, by slaves. Were you a Hamiltonian before you started your book about Hamilton, or did you fall for this character, Alexander Hamilton, in the course of researching him? Ha! <laughs> Fighting words. I was actually in your camp, Bill. And in fact, when I started the book, a friend had suggested, yeah, because I was looking for a topic for a second novel. And she said, you know, founding fever never abates. How about you do a book on Alexander Hamilton? Nobody's really done that yet. And I said to myself, well, yeah, every the devil himself deserves his due. And, you know, it'll be great to write a novel about, you know, the guy we love to hate, you know, the sort of the monarchist, the scheming, preening elitist who fashioned this government for the rich. And uh, as opposed to his foil, you know, Thomas Jefferson, the, the kind, peaceable man of democracy. Right. And, uh, boy, was I wrong. I was, I turned around, you know... 180 degrees. Was this before, during, or after the musical? It was before the musical. Um, and so, of course, you can imagine my delight when I discovered that uh, that the musical, you know, was happening. Actually, I, I had, um, when I was writing the book, a friend told me, they said, oh, gosh, you know, there's somebody kind of like who's on your page about Alexander Hamilton. And he's like, you just did this poetry reading at the White House. Go on YouTube and look at it. And I saw Lin-Manuel Miranda deliver this this speech, this rap to a bemused White House audience who was who was in stitches when he said, I want to tell you about, you know, the, the most interesting man of the American Revolution, Alexander Hamilton. And everybody broke up, you know, because uh, Hamilton has normally sort of been unknown. So I was lucky to um, publish the book right as the musical was cresting. I found this delightful quote from you from an op-ed that you wrote recently, and you said, quote, at the end of my first semester as a professor many years ago, a student studying for the final exam sought me out. I think I understand the American Revolution, she said, but I'm not so sure about the Civil War. Who won? Uh, yeah. To the extent that Americans look at Alexander Hamilton, what do they know about him besides the musical and besides the fact that he is on the $10 bill? I think you just capsulized it right there. Um, in fact, I think most people will say, now, which president was he? You know, so they don't even get. I mean, I think that's true of a lot of the founders. People sort of see the pictures or look at the coins, and they go, ah, yeah, huh, uh, Lincoln, right. Yeah. Who won the Civil War, as my students said? You know, and I, of course, now this, by the way, was Southern California. I'm sure in Virginia you don't have that problem about knowing 
you know, who won, who lost. Well, first of all, it's not the Civil War. It's the War of Northern Aggression. So. Oh, yeah. It's the War of the Rebellion, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. I know, Northern Aggression, which well, in a certain way, you know, by modern standards, it, it was um, in the sense that today we believe that if a group of people and even fair or fraudulent elections, if they vote to secede, um, that they generally can. If uh, Catalonia wants out, if Quebec wants out, you know, we're not going to mount an army to stop them. Um, that wasn't true in the 19th century, which was a, just a very different period of time and where the idea was, you know, this was a compact and, and you violated it, right. was the position of the North. Speaking of Northern aggression, Alexander Hamilton certainly would have been an aggressive Northerner. He was not a shy man. He was, I guess, would you call him an alpha male of his time? Oh, absolutely. And that's what makes him so incandescent. I mean, here's a guy who was the illegitimate child, orphaned, you know, in a way, abandoned um, on the Caribbean, on a faraway Caribbean island, and that's manages. That's the island of Nevis. I've actually been to his birthplace. On yes. Nevis. It was, he was born on Nevis and therefore a British citizen. And then in his youth, his mother took him to um, St. Croix, which was under um, Danish control at right. the time, but he was nonetheless, therefore, a citizen of Britain by birth. And I, yeah, I've been to both places as well in, in the course of writing the novel. And, you know, here's this man from the fringe of the known universe, as it were, and he gets a scholarship. You know, people in his town go, wow, this is something. This guy's something. And so they raise a small bit of money to send him to the mainland to go to grammar school. So that's how he, he, but of course he's largely self-taught. And then right. he gets into what was then called King's College, now called Columbia, and there became a revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Like his, a lot of college students, by the way. His rise is meteoric. He's an aide-de-camp to George Washington during the Revolutionary War. He is involved in the founding of the Republic. And in 1791, he is a 34-year-old Secretary of the Treasury. And he's living in Philadelphia, Elizabeth. And on one summer day, a 21-year-old woman comes knocking on his door. Her name is Maria Reynolds, and she has a request. And what is her request? Well, good question. Um, her request is, can you loan me a little money? Because my husband is abusive, and I want to, I need to get out of here. I need to get out of Philadelphia. I want to go. I want to go back to my family in New York, which is, you know, she's kind of a poor cousin of an illustrious family, mm-hmm. and that's what she, ostensibly, all she's asking. Mm-hmm. And take the story from there. Hamilton does what? Well, he reaches into his. We think Bill Folden says, gosh, I don't have any cash. Uh, can I bring it by later? And she says, yes, please bring it to my, my home at mm-hmm. my, my rented apartment. He goes there, and uh, she seeks to repay him, uh, so he says. Right. And, um, and that repayment is not in cash but in kind. The phrase that Hamilton calls it is other than pecuniary cons- uh, compensa- consolation, other than <laughs> pecuniary consolation, which is a 18th century way of saying what? Well, uh, pecuniary, of course, he is an economist in a way, an early economist, and uh, that's a way of saying something other than money. In this case, <clears throat> one might say the pound of flesh. Um, they end up in an uh, illicit affair. He is married, happily married, to a wonderful, wonderful woman who's the daughter of one of the ch- chief American generals, right. a, a close confidant of George Washington. Um, and he begins this torrid affair with a woman who's got a lot of problems. And then the story takes another twist. The husband, James Reynolds, pops up on the scene. Oh, yeah. So here's the question. Nobody really knows. And Hamilton later suspected, many people suspected, that he'd been kind of lured into this. Because actually, James Reynolds is a a grifter. Mm -hmm. He's um, a crook. 
He um, steals the name of veterans to try to get their pensions, the pensions that Alexander Hamilton, you know, ranges for the whole country because Revolutionary War veterans worked without pay and, and, and finally got their compensation long after the war. And so he's, the, he's a guy who steals the names of these people and robs their widows. And so, um, you know, he starts to blackmail very shortly after the affair starts. And Alexander Hamilton does pay him blackmail out of a very, by the way, meager salary as a government employee. Because unlike just pretty much every single other founder of any note, he wasn't uh, the heir to anything. He had no land. He didn't have slaves, of course. Um, and so it's out of his government salary that he pays these large amounts to try to keep his name out of the papers to try to preserve his beloved wife's, you know, right. peace of mind. But then Hamilton reaches a decision, and the decision is not to deny the affair. It's not to hold a press conference and say, I did not have sex with that woman. What does Hamilton do? Hamilton does this rare and extraordinary thing. It finally gets out, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's leaked, we believe, by the Jeffersonians, the letters that Hamilton had written right, right. to the woman. They get leaked into the press after he's out of office, after George Washington is out of office and can no longer protect him in any way. And one of the culprits in, is suspected as James Monroe, right? Oh, yeah. We think it's very it's very likely it was James Monroe who acting was... Acting possibly on the behalf of one Thomas Jefferson. Probably acting on Jefferson's right. behalf. Because we have jockeying right now, and part of the jockeying is who are going to be the second, third, fourth, and fifth presidents of the United States. Yeah. Will it be Northerners or will it be Southerners? Right. And... Um, and so this, you know, this very powerful thing happens where Hamilton decides, despite, of course, what this pain this must have been for his wife. He, everybody, by the way, all his friends told him, listen, just, just, you know, chalk it up as one of the many, many lies that are told by the opposition. And there were many. Right. So just kind of ignore it and it'll, it'll fade. But he doesn't because he doesn't want anybody to think that he, because they're accusing him of, you know, that it's all tied in with his robbing of the federal government, his, his crookedness, his corruption, right. which doesn't, for which there is no proof. And he doesn't want it to get tied up with that. So he basically, um, he writes this pamphlet to the American public. And he says, I am not proud. I am ashamed of this. I wounded somebody whose heart, you know, deserves nothing but joy. And, uh, but I had an affair with this woman, and this is how it took place. And by the way, my God, because he's an attorney, he believes in giving evidence. Mm -hmm. So he lays out the case with excruciating detail. I mean, he talks about how they met and that he took her at one point into his home while his wife was away, the kinds of things that are so embarrassing and personal and yet so believable, so believable right. that no one could but believe that he was telling the truth. It's also worth noting that he gets revenge against Thomas Jefferson of sorts and that he writes an essay in which he includes this passage about Jefferson. He refers to Jefferson's, and I quote, simplicity and humility afford but a flimsy veil to the internal, he emphasizes that word, internal evidences of aristocratic splendor, sensuality, and Epicureanism. All true. <laughs> so what is he trying to say about Thomas Jefferson? Well, he's trying to say about Thomas Jefferson, which, you know, which, you know, many later historians have said right. 
which is Jefferson was um, very, was a very charming and in-person, self-effacing sort of man. He often crossed his arms. He kind of stooped a little bit. He was very tall. Mm-hmm. Um, He's taller than many, many people of the era. I think he was like 6'3 or 6'4. About 6'2, 6'3. Yeah, yeah, very tall and at least as tall as Washington. But, you know, kind of hunched a little bit. And he, by the way, he would sometimes greet visitors in his bedroom slippers. And, you know, he just, aw, shucks, almost. <laughs> Um, and he never, ever uh, indicated that he had any true interest in political office. You know, these things were kind of thrust upon him, poor, right. poor burdened man who'd rather sit home with his papers and right. architectural drawings. But in reality, of course, he lived always well beyond his means. He lived so far beyond his means, ordering French wine and all kinds of wonderful, beautiful things that make Monticello the treasure and the jewel box mm-hmm. that it is. But he was so impecunious, to use that 18th century sort of word, that at his death, his slaves were the collateral on those debts. And so he couldn't free anybody. Um, As George Washington, in contrast, was a very careful man, um, very financially careful, and upon his death was able to and and planned to and did free all of his slaves. How was Hamilton with his money? Hamilton was, you know... uh, Hamilton was interesting. I mean, he always met all his debts. He, again, he was the, our first ter- Treasury Secretary. Uh-huh. And as a poor man, a man who'd always had to watch every penny, he was, he was very good. And he, did, he di- did die with a debt, of course, unexpectedly died, <laughs> died by the gun. But um, it was a debt to, to, more, to buy a house, to have a house, of finally a home for his family, which he had never owned. So he's a man now in his 40s, is buying his first home, you know, mid 40s, mm-hmm. and building it for his family. Um, but he was also, in a way, it was also interesting because, like a lot of poor people, he was generous with his money. You know, I always, I always make sure to tip people. By the way, Bill, when I because my son is a waiter, by the way, and in Hollywood, <laughs> therefore an actor, and uh, you know, very good actor and done a lot of wonderful things, but nonetheless also a waiter. And I'm just very conscious that a lot of people, if they're working really hard, mm-hmm. then, and if I can afford to go out to eat, uh, and I think, you know, I need to tip them. And I think Alexander Hamilton was very much the same way. Veterans, old veterans would come up to him and say, you know, a colonel or captain, I guess he was originally their old captain. Captain, you know, my wife and I can't blah, 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 blah. And he would do, and he took people in. One veteran, uh, his wife died. The man was had six children, trying to take care of six children on his own. So he took the youngest child into his house, and he and Eliza raised that baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was, and he, by the way, his father, his native, his birth father, who um, to whom his mother wasn't married, uh, had actually abandoned the family. And years later, after the revolution, finally wrote Alexander Hamilton, now that he was famous, and said, hi, buddy. <laughs> and Hamilton sent him money every year because his father was indigent on this faraway Caribbean island. I look at Alexander Hamilton Elizabeth, and I see a JFK-like quality. And this is not about his, his personal peccadilloes, but Kennedy-esque in this regard. John Kennedy was 46 years old when he was gunned down. Alexander Hamilton was 47 years old when he was gunned down. And historians like to play what if with Alexander Hamilton. They love to play what if with John Kennedy in terms of civil rights in Vietnam and so forth. The what ifs with Hamilton include slavery. 
Hamilton belonged to a society of John Jay and others who were abolitionists. So the question is, what would Hamilton have done on slavery? Would he have been more aggressive on the topic? Would he have written about it? How far would he have pushed the issue at the time? Hamilton, had he become president, actually, could Hamilton have become president? He could have. In fact, the Constitution was written, uh, understandably, you know, keep in mind this is a period where what is a citizen? What makes a citizen? No country has ever had to define that right. really before. If you're born a place, you are stuck there. I mean, even if you're born in Nevis, you're a British citizen, regardless of where you go in the world, wherever you take up your home. And they have call on you, by the way, right. to, to dragoon you into uh, to draft you into their service if they want. Um, so in America, one of the things that happened is that the country had to say, okay, these are our citizens. Anybody who pledges allegiance, so to speak, we would say today. Anybody who is naturalized, who's here a certain period of time, can become a citizen. So they wrote the Constitution in such a way that whoever was there when that Constitution went into effect could be president. After that, you had to have been born literally on the shores of the United States. Hamilton, therefore, would have been eligible. Okay, so Article 1, Section 2, he gets around that. So this is the what if. Alexander Hamilton avoids death on the on the plains of Weehawken, New Jersey, and he goes on to become the fourth president of the United States, not the sort of lackluster James Madison in terms of being a strong character, but it's very strong for Alexander Hamilton, who succeeds his rifle Jefferson. And Hamilton does things that Jefferson doesn't, and Madison don't as president, one of which is that Hamilton, being very pro-military, does a better job of preparing the country for a war with Britain. He doesn't just win the War of 1812, Elizabeth. People like to take this a step further. Hamilton invades Canada, <laughs> takes over portions of Canada. Hamilton is very aggressive towards Spain, kicks the Spanish out of Florida, and it goes on from there. But about a Hamilton presidency, Elizabeth, is what I'd like you to expand upon. Hamilton was not a friend of democracy. Hamilton called democracy, in fact, a disease. Well, goodness, so I how, wish uh, I had been taking notes <laughs> during that, that so uh, how would, <laughs> prepared how would, speech. How would Alexander Hamilton, as the fourth president of the United States, rule a democracy when he, in fact, was not exactly wild about the democratic process? Alexander Hamilton, like a lot of the founders, those who wrote the Constitution, which did not include Thomas Jefferson, who was not wild about the Constitution. Jefferson was a much greater believer in the separate sovereignties of all the states. And he, and to some extent, James Madison, who did a 180 himself, uh, came around to the belief that the states really should be able to mostly set their own laws. And frankly, if they didn't like a law, that the federal government passed, they had the right of what they called themselves nullification. Mm -hmm. They could nullify a federal law they thought was stupid, like, uh, you know, no tariffs or whatever, um, import taxes. So let's play the Alexander Hamilton wins the fourth uh, round of the presidency, right. which I think is not inconceivable. He was certainly the leader mm -hmm. and the strongest man in the opposition, the leader right. of the Federalist Party, much stronger than John Adams much probably more far-sighted with a clearer plan. Mm -hmm. uh, he was also, um, you know, he was second in command uh, under George Washington in the next round of the American Revolution, which was the Whiskey Rebellion, in a sense, which was the, the first attempt by the federal government to put down a, a movement within the states to challenge the power of the federal government, later, right. <laughs> later echoed in the Civil War. So he was general. Alexander Hamilton by the time of his uh, retirement from the federal government. So I think that he could have won that. Um, he would have had to come back from this sex scandal. Now, you know, we know that's, that's a tough one. 
But um, but also the 18th century, early 19th century were sort of different times in relation to that. It was almost expected most men, many men anyway, did do this without right. much shame, although Alexander Hamilton was ashamed of it. So in, in his case, first of all, we wouldn't have fought the War of 1812. There wouldn't have been a war with Great Britain. Um, Hamilton was very, he was a drafter of what was known as Washington's Farewell Address, and this was the address in which Washington cautioned against having either too much friend, friend, uh, friendliness or too much en uh, enmity towards anybody. Don't make friends. Don't consider everybody your, en your, uh, your enemy. You know, play that more game more aloof. Um, and Hamilton was always the person who was trying to restrain the hotheads in the American public who wanted to beat right. up on Great Britain again. And that so, so fewer are what we should call foreign entanglements. Foreign entanglements, um, being pugilistic for no good reason when you could when you could negotiate. Mm -hmm. uh, so he played that card again and again. The Jay Treaty of 1795 is a good example of that. So there wouldn't have been a war with Great Britain. Um, he would still have gotten the Louisiana Purchase because that just fell into Jefferson's lap. Right. But unlike Jefferson, Jefferson, when the United States, when another giant chunk of territory fell into our lap at the end of the American War, or these were known as the Northwest Territories, right. Jefferson then was somewhat in a different position. Um, he was drafted the Northwest Ordinance, which um, in which slavery was prohibited from the new territories. Jefferson did not do that as president, a man of much greater power at the time of the Louisiana Purchase. So slavery was easily extended into the territories of Louisiana, in other words, the Deep South and, and beyond. I think Hamilton would likely have extended the same policies that had been announced previously with relation to Northwest Territories. I mean, that's a, a reasonable surmise anyway. So slavery would have been limited to the Old South um, if that happened. Uh, slavery would not have been extended all the way to Texas, where you know I, I work part of my time when I'm not here at, at, at Stanford. Um, so the war of northern aggression, the, the Civil War, whatever you wanted, the war for justice yeah, and truth and freedom. That might have been freedom. accelerated in terms of timeline. Uh, it could have been accelerated or it could have been avoided. Keep in mind, mm -hmm. Hamilton was very savvy. He was always looking about the world. He knew what other countries did. He watched their policies carefully. The British chose to put an excise tax on things like soap mm -hmm. in order to buy out the slaveholders of the Caribbean. Slavery was eliminated without war in much of the world. Um, that was true in Brazil. It was true throughout the British Empire because people sort of realized that this was a great moral um, this was a great moral blight. And so even though there were not great economic reasons to eliminate slavery, in fact, um, one historian has called the British decision to eliminate slavery for moral reasons econocide. You know, they took this economically retrograde decision in, in the view of this particular historian. So Hamilton could have said, hey, you know, let's do what the British do. Let's see if we can pay these guys off and, you know, we'll all outvote them. And, and there would have been more free slates, free, free states. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't have had the Missouri Compromise. I hate to get too technical here. I teach American history. We can go into endless boring detail. But there were a lot of steps to the Civil War, and, and many of those steps could have been taken differently. Okay, let's get this into modern times now on one Donald J. Trump. Uh, I'm not going to suggest that Donald Trump is the Thomas Jefferson of these times. Donald Trump is not a tortured soul living in Monticello and grieving his long-lost wife and playing a violin and thinking about wine and 
spending extravagantly and living beyond his means and at all times thinking Jeffersonian big thoughts. But as Donald Trump, Alexander Hamilton, and at least this regard, don't walk out of here when I say this, but Donald Trump in this regard, we have two New Yorkers. We have two citizens of Manhattan. Alexander Hamilton believed that the United States should be rest upon what? Banks, corporations, stock exchanges, factories. That was essentially Hamilton's view of the founding of America. I'd argue Donald Trump sees America very much the same way, especially in terms of the power of the marketplace. What's the first thing Donald Trump will always talk about? The Dow being at 23,000. Media. Alexander Hamilton loved to play him some media games, and that ultimately, you argue, led to his demise. With Aaron Burr, Donald Trump no stranger to playing head games. Alexander Hamilton, if he were alive today, he might be on Twitter tweeting all kinds of stuff day and night. Oh, gosh, yes. Alexander Hamilton would have been on Twitter. Um, so there, We'd have a great Facebook page. He would. So there seem to be some New York parallels between Hamilton and Trump. So let's talk about what you see as the two have in common, but then also explain the differences. Well, I think you've articulated some of the commonalities. Um, sort of, you know, New Yorkers, mm-hmm. right? Now, now, one was an immigrant New Yorker, immigrant, poor, mm-hmm. impoverished immigrant to a New Yorker, and one's a, a born, ch- born to this manner, child right. of, mm-hmm. of New York privilege. So, but, strong, but strong personalities. But strong personalities, very, you know, very much person, people talking directly to people, um, right. we, as in his confession, Alexander Hamilton's confession of his infidelity. Um, mm-hmm. Those were kinds of ways in which, you know, they just sort of laid it out, um, both of them. Uh, yes, uh, now, big difference, you mentioned banking. Um, certainly, they both, you know, and Hamilton felt very strongly that the way out of poverty for the common person right. was to build a strong economy. And, and Trump, I think, would say the same thing. Right. Um, a difference in that respect, for example, Alexander Hamilton was a man who was very conscious of debt, very faithful to debt. If we owe our veterans, we will pay our veterans. If I owe you money, I will pay you back. Donald Trump, of course, has been bankrupted four times and walked away from those debts. Right. So, I mean, that, and in fact, Donald Trump, actually, oh my God, this is one thing I thought early on when in his campaign when he talked about, well, you know, if we owe money as a country, why can't we just default? Um, now, by the way, that would have had Hamilton spinning in his grave because mm-hmm. Hamilton's one of his greatest principal achievements was to get the southern states to agree to help pay the debts of the northern states. It was right. the assumption of the entire debt of the revolution. So the idea of being credit worthy was that was the foundation of America's success for the rest of the next two, the three, four centuries. He thought, mm-hmm. if you're credit worthy, you know what will happen? People will loan you money. And, you know, banks won't loan Donald Trump money today. But um, but without getting too much in that, I mean, I think that they they certainly had some similarities in, in terms of aspects of uh, their adroitness with uh, media, their belief in a free economy. Um, and certainly that's that. And freedom. Freedom itself was associated with a free economy. You know, I think there is a difference. Um, certainly one could say Hamilton, because his, his sometimes he was very vitriolic in the press. And boy, I'll tell you, you know, Donald Trump looks, well, I don't know. He was more, Donald Trump was more an 18th century man, one might say, right. in the sense that in the 18th century, they were just, they did not mince words when they were criticizing opponents. And we've become more genteel over the last two centuries, and which is why Trump tends to shock us. And that's largely through the avenue of what, anonymous op-eds and... Oh, through Hamilton? Yes, it was the custom in the 18th century. 
um, for public men not to use their names. And I don't know exactly why that was. I, I assume it's partly, you know, to shield your name, mm-hmm. your family's name. I think it was also a way to uh, to avoid vanity. Yes. Like, for example, um, in the Federalist Papers, which, gosh, I wish I had written, and my name would be big on that book. But they didn't think that way. They thought, we'll call all three of us Publius. Mm-hmm. You know, we are the voice of the public. So John Jay, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton took no literary credit for this great document of world history. Right. So, um, yeah, these were anonymous barbs that were slung back and forth. And, by the way, most people know, knew who, who was who, though. I mean, it was a very thin disguise, like you might put a little party mask on, you know, over your eyes. If you're, you suggesting, you're suggesting old Alex would have been very comfortable in today's media culture of social media and doing quick hits on cable and offering hot takes and being being a modern-day pundit. You would have been right at home in that. Absolutely. I guess he was a pundit, actually, during the during the 1790s. Completely a pundit. Uh, he was the founder of the New York Post. Right. Um, he was a newspaper man, you might say. I mean, gosh, the things... He, I, I don't know what he wasn't. By the way, he was a good singer, too. So <laughs> you had to make your own fun in the 18th century, early sure. 19th century. So, um, no, he was very much very quick. And, in fact, I think that's one reason why people... Some people didn't like him at all. First of all, who are you, you upstart? Bastard, I'm sorry. And that was a denotative term at that time for somebody who was illegitimate. It wasn't just a casual insult. Mm-hmm. And in fact, John Adams called him the bastard brat of a Scotch peddler. Uh, in other words, a man whose father came from nothing and who didn't even marry his mother. So, right. um, you know, he was very quick on his feet. Uh, and people, I think, resented the fact that he had earned his way to the top as a military hero, mm-hmm. as a writer as a statesman. Mm-hmm. He was a triple threat to all men of privilege. I am going to speculate that Don, that Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson would have looked at the results of the 2016 election. And my guess, Elizabeth, is that Thomas Jefferson would have been thrilled. Jefferson was a populist. Jefferson detested large cities and the power they held. I think his word for cities, I think he called them sores. Jefferson liked the idea of a little revolution every now and then. He would have liked the idea of the uprising. Hamilton, I'm gonna guess Elizabeth, would have been horrified. Because why? This was the cities losing to the rural areas. And this was democracy and rebellion. He would have thought that perhaps the less enlightened people were driving democracy. And I'm going to guess that would have bothered him. Well, you know, I think think you said earlier that um, Hamilton did not like democracy. And we should talk about that for a few minutes because Mm -hmm. we use words a little differently from people did in the 18th century, right? You know, words get a little different ring in them, if, if you will. Right. Um, and at that time, what Hamilton really meant was systems in which populist currents could overtake good judgment and could lead to chaos and ruin. And as Hamilton pointed out in the Federalist Papers, there have been as many popular wars as royal wars. Mm-hmm. People are people. Mobs are dangerous. And so he was a person who wanted to try to create a structure of government that would guard against mob violence, uh, against populist currents that that could easily um, overwhelm um, the good judgment even of the people in them who would look back upon it and go, oh, my God, what was I thinking in the 60s? (laughs) (laughs) You know, as happens today, right? Right. So – I mean, the 1960s there. So uh, I think, yes, Hamilton would have been truly horrified. He wrote quite a bit about against demagoguery. Um, it, I don't think it was so much rural-urban uh, splits that he abhorred, um, but um, 
he did feel very much that, um, unlike Jefferson, who did say the tree of liberty needs to be periodically watered with blood, you know, Hamilton would not have gone for that. Right. Now, Hamilton wasn't a slave owner. Hamilton never whipped or had somebody else whip for them another person until it drew blood. Mm-hmm. You know, so the idea of the tree of liberty being watered with blood, to me, today, just has such a different ring. And I'm sorry for that. I, I did love Jefferson. I, I would have been in your camp. I've lived in Virginia. I've been to Monticello. And his words, now Jefferson is important. I don't want to diminish his importance mm-hmm. because the those words, even though he didn't walk the walk, right. those words are what live for us with Jefferson. And those words have inspired people, even during the Civil War, to fight against the forces that, you know, in a sense, were represented by Jefferson, right. Southerners as well as Northerners who Jeffer- bound together to, to eliminate this great human tragedy of slavery. Jefferson is just impossibly complicated on some levels. On the one hand, he believes that all men are created equal, but he believes that all white men are created equal. He has compassion. He's a man who has feelings. On the other hand, he believes that black people are genetically, physically inferior to white people. So he's at all times processing these different thoughts. But would Hamilton have believed in the slogan, Make America Great, as I could see Jefferson believing in the phrase, Drain the Swamp? Would, well, Hamilton, would Hamilton be wearing a red ball cap with MAGA on it? Definitely not. Um, Hamilton, uh, by the way, was a bit of a dandy. Having grown up in poverty, he loved good clothes once he could afford them. Um, but he would not have been ever wearing a red baseball cap in, in the sense that he believed in making America great. And he worked harder than I think anybody else other than George Washington, to make America great. He created the actual machinery of government, not only on paper in the Constitution, but physically in the creation of offices of government, the founded our first armed force, meaning the U.S. Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. You know, he did all these kinds of things to make America great, wrote a great paper on uh, the development of manufacturers. So, um, but I think he would have been a great believer in due process for that, making sure that all the the levers of government were coordinating and working together as best we can um, to, to, uh, you know, serve that process. So as we look at the defining qualities of Hamilton, look at the defining qualities of the Trump campaign, let's talk about where Hamilton breaks down on Trump, as it would be will, uh, beginning with number one, the idea of protectionism. Yes. Um, Alexander Hamilton was a free trader. Uh, and uh, by the way, this is where his first break with James Madison mm-hmm. was over free trade. Uh, Jam- James Madison wanted, you know, he thought, gosh, now great, fabulous. Now we've got a Congress. Now we can create a good retaliatory trade policy against Great Britain. And Hamilton's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're like a country. We're a tiny country. We have big debts left over from the revolution. We want to pay these veterans' pensions. We have got to have free trade because, you know, this will help us. And also, by the way, we need some small tariff because that's the only way the federal government was uh, was funded. There was no um, income tax at all. So that's one reason for a Coast Guard was to what they were called revenue cutters. Right. A cutter was a name for a ship. And so they would go out and make sure that smugglers weren't bringing stuff in without paying the duties on them, on the cargoes. And um, but. Madison and Jefferson both wanted to use tariffs as in a retaliatory fashion. And um, so this would be something that, you know, for he would not, for example, try to retaliate against China mm-hmm. uh, today. 
Hamilton. He'd say, let's let's work out good trade agreements. Let's get the best ones we can. Let's with, live with the ones that we need. They're not the best we could, you know, we, in an ideal world we might like, but, you know, we'll advance our economy. And um, so he didn't believe in, for example, he was a diplomat. He wasn't right. a person who would throw around snide comments about foreign leaders. He just would never do that. Mm-hmm. Immigration. Is there... Any way to talk about immigration today versus Hamilton, or is just where we are as a country today just too far advanced from where we started? Hmm. Now, you're asking yeah. Alexander Hamilton to process people coming across the border from Mexico. You're asking Alexander Hamilton to process the idea of a country with two languages spoken and government benefits and so forth. That's a lot to handle for the beginning of a republic. Yeah, well, I think the government benefits part of it is probably the the most we would be most anachronistic in mm-hmm. thinking about how a mo- how a person of that era would think about, you know, um, food stamps or something. Um, so let's take that off the table. On on immigration, uh, you know, I think again Hamilton was an economist. He read Malachi Postlethwaite on on economics. You know, I mean, he was he was this person who studied all what were then the great economists. So he would have recognized, I believe, that people like himself, immigrants, uh, brought talent to our country. He would have not had an emotional reaction to, you know, people speaking different languages. Because keep in mind, I mean, America was actually using even different currencies when it first became a sovereign country. Like, we didn't even have, like, one single currency. You know, we were using Spanish, you know, Spanish pesos, Dolores, dollars. In fact, our word dollar comes from the Spanish word dollar. Um, so I, I think he would have been not as reactive as we have become about the influence of immigrants. I mean, he just wanted the best for America, the best talent, the best brains, wherever they came from. You know, it's hard. As you said, right. a little bit is anachronistic because the world is so much bigger and it's more populous now. America was an underpopulated country at the time. So it is a bit different. I learned this lesson years ago. I was writing a speech for a, for a governor, and I decided we were talking about um, we were talking about affirmative action and about upward mobility. So I thought, you know, I wonder how Abraham Lincoln would have processed this. So I called a very prominent Lincoln scholar and said, I'm writing this speech, and here's my premise, and I'm trying to put Lincoln in a modern-day context of the welfare state and trying to help people. What would Lincoln say? And he paused. He said, Abraham Lincoln just would not... <laughs> This was just so far beyond what Lincoln was dealing with in the 1860s. It's just not applicable. Ah, yes, but I will beg to differ with unnamed Uh, historian who you just mentioned. Because uh, Abraham Lincoln, um, we get the Homestead Act from Abraham Lincoln, which is the biggest giveaway deal in all American history. It makes the GI Bill look like, you know, stingy. It makes all the welfare benefits almost, and maybe I'm exaggerating yes. now, but um, in fact, I was in Brazil once. I, yeah, my first book was on U.S.-Brazil international relations, mm-hmm. and a Brazilian economist and, and minister looked at me and he said, gosh, if only we'd ever had an Homestead Act. Um, and it was, you know, it was this thing where the federal government just gave away money to people, in a way, in a Hamiltonian sense, which was to say, you know, we got all this stuff. We're sitting on it. Mm-hmm. Let's get it out there. Let's get it used. Uh, this is a treasured resource. You know, have at it, folks. Right. Okay. Uh, final Trump-Hamilton policy overlap, and that's foreign policy. I don't see Alexander Hamilton calling Kim Jong-un rocket man. Would Alexander Hamilton been comfortable with the concept of, let's say, dropping some bombs in Syria, the larger concept Elizabeth of the United States as essentially the hammer for protecting democracy, being the force of good around the globe. 
Well, the interesting thing about Trump is that, you know, he has he has spoken out of both sides of his mouth on this. Mm-hmm. In the campaign, he was very much, a, you know, America first. And, uh, you know, why are these people free riding on us? You know, go deal with your own problems. Right. But now that he's in office, he's taken a different tact, which, by the way, is not unusual for American presidential candidates. It's actually his election rhetoric that was very different from previous candidates. But his actions in office are very much in stride with what has been ongoing ongoing since the Truman Doctrine of 1947. The U.S. is the first and last guarantor of world peace, although Trump obviously is much more pugilistic and confrontational than than any American president um, that I'm aware of in all the American history, uh, in the sense that he's very impolite uh, towards uh, foreign friends as well as foreign rival, you know, rivals. Um, so in that sense, certainly Alexander Hamilton would not have would not have done that. Again, uh, Alexander Hamilton was a person who believed, like his entire generation, incidentally, that America could best lead the world by being a good example for the world. And by the way, that, that did work out for much of American history. Democracy did very gradually, mm-hmm. and republicanism, meaning non-monarchical forms of government, did gradually spread around the globe, continues, that process continues up to the present, partly because other people look at America and go, wow, hmm, I could have had a V8. <laughs> I could I could have done that. You know, I, I, wanna, I want that. And so that was his belief. He would not have been, a, you know, calling people rocket man and saying, you know, we're going to eliminate you if, you know, if you cross us. If I want to read about Hamilton, if I want a good biographical primer on the man, who do I turn to? Well, personally, I consider Ron Chernow's book, Hamilton, you know, kind of the Bible for me. I carried it everywhere when I was working on the book. Joanne Freeman is also of Yale University is also an outstanding Hamilton scholar. Personally, I think The Hamilton Affair by Elizabeth Cobbs is, a, is also a good way to start. I, got, I have to admit to you, Bill, you, know, you might say, now, why does a professional historian who mostly writes nonfiction get into novels? And that's because I consider novels history on the cheap. Mm-hmm. When I was a girl, I that's how I got into history. I loved to I loved to read novels, to sit in my mom's hammock and, you know, swing and read a novel to learn about history. So, you know, good historical novels of any type I think follow the facts really closely. But um but Chernow and Freeman are both wonderful scholars and they'll be just the facts, ma'am. Very good. Have you seen the musical? Doggone it, no. I have waited. It was so expensive. I just couldn't stretch my dollars far enough to go. But I now have uh, Christmas tickets in Los Angeles in a, in a couple of months. So I'm, I'm delighted to say I will soon see the musical. Is this a good thing or a bad thing for Hamilton to be put in a musical? And here's what I'm getting at. On the one hand, it's terrific that he becomes mainstream, that he is celebrated at Tony Awards, and it's a chance for people now to wake up and see who Alexander Hamilton is. But are people really learning about Alexander Hamilton through a musical like this? Well, I think they are. And, um, you know, I, again, in the musical also, this is what I was trying to achieve in the novel before the musical, you know, became a, came about. I think people don't get things that seem sort of boring, like, you know, why would, you know, the assumption of state debts be important? Yawn. You know, why did it matter that people disagreed about the, you know, passing of the Constitution? Yawn. And I think that those issues are so with us today. Those essential questions form us. We, we talk about them all the time without knowing we're talking about them. Mm-hmm. And so to understand where they sprang from, why caring people 
debated them and why they came to different conclusions and why we actually, despite those differences, passed a constitution that we should treasure and, and, and improve upon and, and value. Um, I think that's something that musicals like, like Hamilton give us, give a new generation, and, and I hope they'll help people answer better questions like, now, who won the Revolutionary War? Who did we fight it against? Were we declaring, what were we declaring? Oh, right, independence from whom? Was it Russia we were fighting? You know, and those are things that sadly too often Americans don't really know. There's a scene in The Simpsons where it's the last day of school at Springfield Elementary and the kids, as soon as the bell rings, the kids are all flying out of the school and the history teacher jumps out and he goes, wait, we haven't finished the Second World War. And they all look at him and he goes, we won! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I assume you've seen the movie 1776, the musical. You know, I have not seen that musical either. I've read 1776 if you're talking about the David McCullough. So there's the McCullough novel, which then gets turned into a musical. It becomes a Broadway play, and then it becomes, it's adapted into a movie. Well, you know, I got to tell you, I'm I'm so charmed to tell you, sadly, I did not see that musical. But um, I have a book called American Umpire, which is about the history of American foreign relations from George Washington up to Barack Obama. It was published in 2013, Mm -hmm. and it was made into a movie last year. So I like to say, my book, the movie. But uh, so far, I have not been a part of any musical. I would think actually a novel which is based on Alexander Hamilton's private affairs, that actually is movie fodder, because if you go and look at Thomas Jefferson, movie adaptations of Jefferson, Jefferson in Paris which is based oh. largely Nick Dolte. Jeff- we Jeffersonians don't care for Nick Dolte playing Thomas Jefferson, but eh, Nick Dolte. But it's based largely on Thomas Jefferson's private life. Yes, absolutely. And I, I did see that film, yeah. and I agree. It wasn't a very good film, and I don't think Nick Nolte was the right man. Yeah. I, I'm not sure who would have been, but Christian Bale, possibly, but with red hair. Um, so uh, Chris, Christian Bale right now, who's playing Dick Cheney. Oh, yeah, okay. So right, Christian Bale is such an adaptable, interesting actor. Um, so, you know, I think that, uh, that musicals are a very interesting way to get things out. Yes, perhaps the uh, affair could be the basis for a film. I'm actually, I'm just now finishing my, my third novel, mm-hmm. uh, which is on Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman. And I know there's a movie in this. It's about an incident during the American Civil War in which she led a raid in the South, and it's fabulous. It takes place over 10 days, so filmmakers out there be be waiting for the novel. Okay, George Washington has certainly had his play in biographical circles, as has Alexander Hamilton, as has Thomas Jefferson, John Adams. In addition to books, he has the HBO series. Which founding fathers are not getting their due? Hmm, good question. You know, as you said, James Monroe is a little lackluster. In fact, somebody was it you. So a funny thing about James Monroe, so there is a show on the cable channel Showtime on Sunday nights. It's called Dice. It stars Andrew Dice Clay, the the, the outrage comic from the 1980s and 90s, and it puts Dice in modern day today in Las Vegas, and Dice is largely, has been, he's struggling to exist. And one of the plot lines for this year is Elizabeth, that Dice is put into a show starring James Woods, and the name of the show is Monroe. It's a musical. <laughs> so I figured, okay, Hamilton works as a musical. We'll do one on Monroe. Your first thought is, James Monroe? Yeah, so the man who deserves his own musical, mm-hmm. it'll be tough, right. but is Benjamin Franklin. Okay, now Franklin, okay, it's tough because he was an older man, so uh, so Harrison Ford, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think who would who'd be old enough to and charming enough to play him, but uh, Benjamin Franklin, despite the fact that he had a little hair loss problem, he was apparently, you know, very magnetic. 
Yes. And uh, and had many affairs. Uh, by the way, he you know he wasn't married at the time, uh, in in Paris as apparently men were wont to do, and women in in Paris at the time. So I mean, he is such an interesting founder. I was in Philadelphia not long ago because of the Hamilton novel, and you know I've been to Philadelphia a number of times, but in, it was different in my head because I'd been studying Alexander Hamilton. So I was really my husband's from Philadelphia, and so we were walking the streets. And you can't turn a corner without it. Oh, and here's the first fire station in America established by Benjamin Franklin. And here's the first, you know, purpose-built, as they said in the day, hospital in America built by, you know, Benjamin Franklin. Here's the first press. Here's the first insurance company. Here's a man like Hamilton. By the way, there's this famous, famous portrait um, of the founders at the writing of the Constitution. And in the center of that portrait, the two men who are looking at each other, one has the ear, the younger one has the ear of the older, and the older is looking amused and interested, and the younger one is looking avid and keen. And they are Hamilton and Benjamin Franklin. Mm-hmm. By the way, if you want to grab lunch after this, we can hop in the car and go up to Redwood City, and we could go to Ben's Frank's, which is a little <laughs> hot dog shack, but there's a big big picture of Benjamin Franklin on it for some reason. It's, it always fascinates me. They think Benjamin Franklin is a is a lure in for hot dogs. Well, you know, takes all kinds. So final question, let's put this in more of a Hoover context in your, in your study as a historian. You're looking at what happened in 2016, Elizabeth, and now we're going through this phase with Donald Trump. Our, I know it's a difficult question as a historian projecting the future, but do you think we're in sort of an unusual four to eight year period in American history, or is this the beginning of a much longer 10 to 20 to 30 year siege of American history in terms of populism, in terms of nationalism, in terms of just this very rough brawling almost on a daily basis of politics in this country? You know, I'm, I also write world history. I teach, in fact, at Texas A&M, I teach world history. A lot of what we call Americanists, in other words, historians who focus on the history of the United States, don't particularly like to do that because there's not a lot of call for it. We have a lot of classes we could teach, throngs of students who have to take, poor souls have to have to take American history. But I choose to teach them world history as well because... I think we need to always understand ourselves in context. Their populism and nationalism are a pace right now around the world, which is a very dangerous trend. Mm-hmm. So we're a part of world trends, and I don't consider that a, a good development. It wasn't a good development in the 1930s where we saw that happen. Uh, it led to gr- great wars. Um, so I, I do wake up worried sometimes about that. However, I also recognize that we have institutions we did not have in the 1930s. I think, I believe personally that we need to treasure those institutions rather than throwing spitwads at them all the time. Things like the United Nations, things like the World Trade Organization, um, and of course there are many other examples of that. And working through those institutions, I think, can keep us much safer Mm -hmm. than we were in the 1930s at another high in terms of populism and vitriol and general nastiness. Um, but, um, and in that sense, um, one reason why I write about people who I think are heroic is because I think it's okay to have heroes. And often in the study of history, because we, we really do want people to understand our heroes, warts and all, mm-hmm. Jefferson's great leadership as well as his great flaws, and those of Hamilton too, because they motivate us. It's sort of like people say, well, people break the law. What are the laws good for then? Well, you know, the laws guide us. The laws tell us right from wrong, and institutions guide us too. So I do worry. I hope it is. I hope it's brief to answer your question more briefly. Uh, I do hope this is a short period for us, and it's a wake-up call. 
In fact, it can be. It can be a way of saying, wait, this isn't who we are. Who we are are law-abiding people. We honor our debts. We honor our commitments. We have to find the best way to honor those commitments. Uh, I don't necessarily believe being at all times the, you know, the most interventionist power in the world is the best way to honor our commitments. There are a lot of ways to honor good commitments. So, you know, time will tell. Okay, I do have one more question. Ah, you told me it was the last yes. one. Yes. <laughs> you, you have to take history courses when you're going through high school, getting a secondary education. When you go to college, though, it's, an, it's possible to walk through an entire four years of a U.S. university and not take a single history course. Let's suppose the young man, young woman comes to you and says, Dr. Cobbs, I'm not a history major. I'm not going to be a history minor, but I want to take four to five basic history courses just to have a rudimentary understanding of how the country works and how the world works. What four courses would you steer them to? What blend of U.S. and, and world history would you, would you advise for them? Well, you know... I know, I, know f I know four is kind of a small sample, but... No, it's a great sample. Um, and I would advise them, first of all, to find the best teacher you can who will work you hard. Because you don't want to find a calculus teacher who will just give you a few problems and like not really prepare you for that giant exam at the end that's given university-wide. And, and Similarly the, and, with history. And the risk with the history professor is what? Just the, maybe the lazy professor who just, if you, if you read the professor's books, study them on the internet, just throw back at them what you assume they want to see, you'll get a, you'll get a B or an A. Yeah, the, the lazy professor. You know, there'd be lazy people in all occupations sure. in the world. So, sure. you know, the professor who, or the professor who wants to get good student evaluations and so therefore is not maybe personally lazy but allows students to be lazy because they think right. the students will give them higher marks and nowadays students grade teachers and so that changes how teachers grade students it's mm -hmm. not a good feedback loop really um, so you know I think a, a teacher who's known for being kind of a tough teacher uh, you know, like a tough coach who wants a who wants a coach who says ah you ran the race good enough no, my God, you're going to the Olympics. So I would say take four courses, take them from good professors, make sure they work you hard. Take the surveys, two surveys, world history one and two, take mm -hmm. American history one and two. Mm -hmm. You know, that should give you the literacy with which to read the newspaper. And that's what we all need as citizens, as good citizens. And that's what our founders wanted. They all believed in what we today actually would call democracy, meaning representative government. And they also believed that the only way a republic could survive, and they were very, very worried about the survival of our republic, was through education. And that's why they mostly all supported popular education. And do you worry about the nation's lack of historical understanding of what we would call historical ignorance. I do, yes. Getting, uh, getting back to the idea of who won the Civil War. Get, get right. And who did win? Could you help me out in that, Bill? Because every now and again, I forget. Never, of course. Right. All right. Uh, final question. So when is your next novel coming up? Ooh, good question. I hope it's next year. I'm putting the finishing touches on it. I'd like to do a book a year, of course. You know, that's pretty tough. So I hold myself to probably too high a too fast a timetable, but I'm, I'm done with the first draft, and I'm, I'm just passionate about it. I, I'm so, I, I get so excited when I write a new book. I'm just, I can't stop thinking about it. I wake up in the night, I write a different sentence, you know, I change a sentence around. As soon as it's published, I never read it again. So I'm, I'm, I'm very hoping much, very much hoping that the Tubman novel comes out next year. I look forward to seeing it. Dr. Elizabeth Cobbs, thanks for coming in today. And when Jefferson the Musical comes out, I'm taking you. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. 
If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, spread the word. Please tell your friends about us. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Elizabeth Cobbs and her Hoover colleagues to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Dr. Elizabeth Cobbs is also on Twitter, and her Twitter handle is at Elizabeth underscore Cobbs. That's at Elizabeth underscore C-O-B-B-S. Anything else you'd like to mention while I've got you here? No, just thank you so much. I, I, I want to know why you're not delivering the news on CNN or <laughs> MSNBC <laughs> or Fox or something. Thank you. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.